You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. God's command to us this morning is, his word to us this morning is, live up to your calling. Live up to your calling. And the question he's asking us, uh, really he's posing us, or the picture he's putting forward to us is, can you see, do you know what strength I have exerted in saving you? And do you live with that same power flowing through you? That's what this passage is all about. In fact, it's a, it's a part of a longer train of thought. We're jumping, just jumping straight into the middle of Ephesians just for one week. Um, it's part of a longer train of thought that runs all the way from the beginning of Ephesians uh, for three chapters and then finishes with, in chapter 4, verse 1, with this phrase, Therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So that's our application, if you like, right there, the big picture. I'm going to paint a picture for you, Paul, saying over three chapters of my letter, then I'm going to say to you, now, you've seen the big picture, live a life worthy of that calling which you've received. And our reading today is just a small section of that three-chapter argument, just ten verses. But it's a, a key moment, and it seems to me that it's, it's like a painting, almost painted in black and white, in dark and shade. It's, uh, it's like a painting painted on a cosmic canvas in vivid detail to show us the nature of our salvation. In particular, to show us what we have been saved from and what we have been saved for. And that picture is supposed to cause a response in us. This week I was uh, just doing some research on uh, some stuff and I went on a wiki wonder. You know what a wiki wonder is? Some of you do, some of you don't. When you start reading about one subject in an hour later, you're like, you've read about 17 different things and um, you found out quite a lot of information that probably wasn't really related to what you needed to find out about. So anyway, I found out about William Hogarth. Anyone know who William Hogarth is? Uh, he's a painter, a composer of painted works. <laughs> he painted a really famous uh, uh, picture called uh, Gin Lane. You know the one with, you probably did it at school, and uh, it's got a lady with dropping her baby off some steps because she's drunk on gin. And um, anyway, William Hogarth painted morality pictures. He painted series of pictures uh, which showed what would happen to you if you followed a certain path in life. You know, if you were a troublemaker, if you were lazy at work or whatever. And he would do like one, two, three, four pictures. This is how it is at the beginning, innocently messing around at work. And by number four, you're destitute and dying and that sort of thing. And he would show the progression. And he was really good at painting vivid pictures that would sort of make you laugh, but also go, oh, hang on, there's a takeaway here. It's something I really need to listen to. I mustn't live like that, or I must live like this. And Paul is doing something similar here in painting for us a big, vivid picture of our salvation. He's saying, look, look at what God has saved you from. And he's painting it in the starkest terms. Look, look at what he saved you for. If this picture becomes part of your lives, it lays a foundation that will affect every part of how you live. So today I want to focus on three things that Paul says, if you three parts of that picture, if you like. Three things that Paul says in these verses. 
that lay that foundation for us. And then we'll look at the response. So firstly, we're going to look at what we've been saved from. Secondly, we're going to look at what we've been saved for. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the details of the characters in this picture. And we'll try and draw it all together in one big point. So firstly, and what we've been saved from. I'm going to read again the first three verses and listen to how starkly Paul paints for us the picture of what it was like before you were a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So it's pretty stark already. Dead. You are dead. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says you are dead. That may be news to you. You follow the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom. You were basically subject to a king you didn't know anything about, but you followed his rules. And in fact, that same king is at work in people all around you. He's working out his kingdom. There's an evil at work in the world. And you used to be a victim to it. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So not only were we victims, we just did whatever we felt like. We're objects of wrath, fit for the rubbish pile, for the furnace. That's what he's saying. That's what we've been saved from. So as I read that, I've been a Christian a really long time. I know that the depth, well, I'm beginning to know the depths of my sin, but God has revealed it to me more and more over time, just how sinful I am. You know, I'm a pastor, so I know lots of your sin as well. Sorry to say it. (laughs) And looking around the world, it's pretty bad. But even, even though with that experience, as I read that, my response is still, really? Is it, is it that bad? Was I, was I that bad? Are the people, and this is more aptly perhaps, are the people around me who aren't Christians that bad? And actually, I think it's really important to take that objection seriously. For us to understand our, our salvation and to understand the gospel message we have, and especially how it might be heard by people around us, we need to understand that that is one of the reactions we would get. If you went and preached in Queen Square in Crawley and said, you're dead in your transgressions and sins, you're following, you're gratifying your evil desires, lots of people would just go, really? I don't think I'm that bad. And for us to seek it seriously for ourselves, we need to, we need to answer those questions uh, about our own lives as well. What does the Bible mean by dead? What does the Bible mean by dead? Well, obviously it doesn't mean that there's no physical life in us. You know, that's one of the puzzles you get in the Genesis story, isn't it? When God tells Adam and Eve, if the day you eat of this fruit, you should surely die. They eat the fruit and, well, they don't die. Not straight away. Um, but spiritual death enters the world at that point. And what the Bible paint, what Paul is painting a picture for us here is what it means to be cut off from the source of life which is relationship with God, and therefore subject to the forces of decay. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. So we're going to give out some flowers later. Some of you will give flowers to your mums, and sorry to be unromantic about it or unsentimental about it, but those flowers that we give, most of them are going to be dead, aren't they? They're going to be beautiful. It looks like there's life in them. they still got their colour, but 
Unless you bought a potted plant, if you bought one with the stems cut, that flower is technically dead. It's been cut off from the source of its life. And therefore, it has no way of growing anymore. Over time, in a week or two weeks, depending on where you bought it and how much you paid and how much you feed it and all that sort of thing. <laughs> those bunches of flowers are subject to the forces of decay. Will wither and die. The petals will fall off. If you leave them in the water long enough, it'll stink. If you come into a, you know, kitchen and you've forgotten a bunch of flowers that you've left in a, in a vase and the water starts to smell. Oh, it's awful. It's like a rat's died. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, happy mouth to say, yeah. But there's a good bit. There's like a whole light side to this one as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> what God saved us from. That's what we're talking about, remember? <laughs> um, so uh, Paul paints a picture of us, uh, of what it's like to be, if you like, the, the source of our life is cut and we're drifting along, subject to the forces of decay. So he says, you followed the ways of the world. The picture's like a log that's drifting along in a s- stream, you know? You're just carried along with the current. You're subject to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You're not free. You're following the rules of a kingdom, like I said, you don't even recognize. You're subject to fleshly desires, gratifying the desires of the flesh. That means you're being mastered by something that's controlling you. So we see that contrast. You know, an amazing thing about plants is if you, um, you know, a living plant can break through concrete. You think, well, how could a, the tip of a, a shoot of a young, you know, flower or something break through concrete, but it can. Over time, that life force in it can crack it open, and eventually, if you leave it long enough, you, you know, it will completely take over. But without that, we're completely subject to those forces of decay. A plant that's, you know, that isn't doesn't have any life would just rot. So. That's the picture Paul's painting for us. Just as a plant can grow through concrete, so when we're plugged into the life of God, like his, his life will flow through us and we become alive, truly alive. But if that life is gone, we become victim to these forces of decay. So, that's, that's the picture of spiritual death Paul's painting. He's painting it starkly for us. So then how do we make sense of the, we do see goodness in the world around us, don't we? We know people who are not Christians, who are nice people, who live good lives and so on. How do we make sense of those things? Well, people are good, but like those bunches of flowers are good. There was life at the beginning when God made it, when it was all plugged into him. He's poured his goodness into the world. But it, but their lives are cut from that source. And so there's a limited resource. Nothing new can enter into it. Just a, a rearranging of the goodness that God has already put into our lives. <laughs> So, you know, the supply chain is cut. It's like if you cut down a tree, you can make all sorts of beautiful things out of the wood. A giant oak tree, you know, you could build a house, you can make amazing furniture. But you can't make any more new wood or acorns or new new trees. There's no more growth there. There's just rearrangement of the resources. And that's what we see in the world around us. There is goodness. But it's the goodness that comes from the deposits that God has already placed there. There's no new goodness, just a rearrangement. And that's really key for us to grasp that. Because that helps us, helps us to understand how we should behave as Christians. It helps us to preach the gospel to people as well. You know, in terms of preaching the gospel, people might say, as people have said to me, I, I don't think I need God. You know, my life's okay. <laughs> Depends on your situation in the world, you know? If it, lots of people in our country are secure and materially and so on and they have lots of good things. 
But what you can say to people, and maybe it's true for you here this morning, you can say, that, that goodness, the one thing you'll notice is it's subject to decay. You can rearrange the gifts God has given you. You might be the most intelligent or sporty or gifted person or whatever it is. You might have money or, you know, all sorts of good things in your life, but you will not be able to rearrange them in order to create new goodness in your life. You will not grow as a person. You may change, you may acquire new habits, you may be able to discipline yourself to do new things, but you will find there is no new life in you as you get older. And increasingly, the older you get, and we see this very vividly portrayed simply in the aging process, as natural things strip away, there'll be fewer and fewer good things, naturally speaking. You know, life without God is... <laughs> just shuffling around the deck chairs on the Titanic. You could, you know, create a wonderful arrangement of chairs. But the iceberg has been hit and the boat's going down. But life with God is a constant arrival of a new life. New things, transformation, new power, abilities to overcome challenges, abilities to break the chains that bind you. New freedoms, new fruit, peace and joy and love. That only comes through relationship with God. So, you know, if if you know someone, and maybe it's you, is struggling, they're trying everything they can to find that missing something, that source of life, you know, They're having a midlife crisis or whatever it is. And if I rearrange this, if I do that, surely this missing thing is going to come into my life. You can tell them it's not going to come without a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not just an evangelistic note. That's a, it's a great warning for us for how we should live as well. Because we look at the world around us and what we see is the biblical word for it is vainglory which is an attempt to look glorious, but which is vain. It's in vain. You know, so um, just to think think of a couple examples, one really big example, a kind of global example. If you go to countries uh, like we've just been to India, the Indian government is now pursuing a a policy where it's, it's actively trying to emulate the United States in the way it runs its country. So it's trying to put in laws in place and so on. And it sounds a bit abstract, but it illustrates the point. What they're missing, of course, in India is that the United States, for most of its history, has been a Christian country. So the thing that made those laws work so well, in as much as they've worked well, is not that they chose an excellent form of government and just wound up like clockwork and let it go. But it's the influx of Christians who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were able to live out those laws and live lives that gave glory to God. I mean, to greater and lesser degrees, you know. And it's the same story all across Western Europe, I'd argue. You know, China, India, all these developing, growing nations. They want to emulate our way of life, but they don't want the power at the heart of, of our historical civilization, which has been faith in God. It, w- it won't work. It's vainglorious. You know, you've gone, um, uh, I fairly recently, uh, come to, I was going to say appreciate. That's not a good word. Come to, to see the world of Instagram. <laughs> So much vanity, so much vanity of people who want to look like they're living happy lives, who want to look beautiful. And, you know, and people are literally thinking beauty comes from 
taking a photo from the right angle with the right makeup on or the right clothes on or the right background behind you, depending on, you know, who you are and what your situation is. And, and it's vainglorious. They're trying to look like they're happy. They're trying to look like this life is flowing into them and, oh, look at all these amazing things that are happening. But it's just makeup. <laughs> or sponsorship or situations. Now, the world is living like that because they are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. They don't know what else to do to be happy. But we have something better, don't we? We actually have the source of those things. So, you know, God says to, um, uh, to you women, if you see someone on Instagram and they look amazing just on a, on a photograph, just to take one silly everyday example, God says, seek the true beauty that comes from a gentle and quiet spirit. That flows into self-discipline, it flows into the fruit of the Spirit, it flows into a life that's so full of God's goodness that, yeah, it, you know, it will overflow into beauty in all sorts of different ways. But it's, it's not a vainglorious beauty. It's a genuinely substantial beauty. You know, for all of us, whatever ambitions, whatever lives we have, God is saying, you can leave that vanity, this dead life behind, where you're just rearranging your life to make it look good. And you can actually pursue genuine goodness by seeking relationship with God and having his love flow into you and make the whole of your life fruitful. So, what we've been saved from. That's the first thing. This uh, death doesn't always look like death, but when we see it from scripture, it is. Okay, secondly, what we've been saved for. You know, for for someone like William Hogarth or any painters, contrast is the best friend, you know, of the painter. So the first part, Paul is painting it kind of as black as as he could get it, as dark as he could get it. Things are terrible. But the second part of uh, this passage is blindingly bright. So listen to verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ. And listen to this, just to hear it afresh. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Christ is, he's mentioned three times in those two verses, he's there as a, the brilliant source of light amidst it all. But, but look at what he's saying, he's, he's talking this, uh, this incredible transformation. Verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as we read, I think as we read that second part of um, our reading today, we encounter a kind of opposite problem to the first part. In the first part, we're like, are things really that bad? But in the second part, my question is, am I, am I really that good? <laughs> is, is that really what God has got planned for me? He's seated with me. He seated me with Christ in heavenly places and now, which means that Christ's power is at work in me, flowing through me, and you know I'm able to live a Christ-like life and to be a brother to Christ, to be a, a child of God. Is that actually true? It sounds a little bit too big. <laughs> Look at he talks about this incredible transformation of location. He's taken us. You know, from the depths, from the mud and the mire, from the bottom of the ocean, if you're joining, he's taken us from the depths and he's lifted us up. He's changed our location and seated us in the highest place. And look at the time scale he gives us. For how long will we glorify God? In what age will we glorify God? In the ages to come. I think it says ages. Huh. 
Yes, it does. It says ages. Not in the age to come. The ages to come. So he's saying, God is going to be so glorified for you. There's not going to be any end to the glory that flows through you. For his glory. It's a picture of God, what God intends to do through us. There's, um, and uh, one of C.S. Lewis's books, a little episode in um, The Magician's Nephew, I think really captures this contrast and perhaps our inability to get how important we are to God's plans. In uh, The Magician's Nephew, there are two characters called Frank and Helen. Anyone remember them? Yeah, Frank is a cabbie and Helen is his wife. And they're kind of, uh, I think they're East End, EastEnders, and they accidentally get transported to Narnia. And, you know, he's so naive and so just London-bound in his vision. He thinks they've fallen through a sewer and ended up in some underground garden or something. <laughs> you know, they and they're just so every day. They're deliberately portrayed as commoners, you know. And yet they become the first king and queen of Narnia, King Frank. <laughs> the first, and Queen Helen. It's a beautiful illustration that if you're a Christian, that's you. Who are you going to be in ages to come? That's how important we are. God is going to be glorified for us. Heaven is not only to bless us with his presence. It's not only that we get to enjoy him forever, but he has ordained it that just as his glory shine through Christ and will ever do so, so his glory will shine uniquely through each one of us. So that each of us brings praise to him in a way that no one else could, displaying the manifest, enormous and beautiful and infinitely various nature of his glory. That's what we're destined for. He's taken dirty, scavenging, guerrilla rebels from the opposition army and made them princes in his own court. He's taken wretched, desperate, abandoned, orphaned daughters and made them princesses in heaven. And verse 10, he's prepared good works for us to do. You know, we have to grasp how bigger deal this is. You know, the good works God has prepared for us to do. It is not naff. You know, make sure you do your good deed for the day. It's not either the kind of hubristic and pumped up kind of your people of destiny, your world changes. We are, but not in the way the world sees it. It's not going to always going to be in the obvious ways. But we are to be channels of his grace, his goodness into the world that bring glory to him and transformation to the world around us. Through, yes, simple, quiet, obedient lives of faith, working through love, God pours his power into the world. That's what we've been saved for. What does it matter if you pursue a godly life? What does it matter if you live according to God's rules? Of course it matters. Of course it matters. It's worth more than we can know. We'll come back to that point. Thirdly then, two characters in our picture. That chap I mentioned, William Hogarth, his pictures are full of details. and You can examine the background and you can see the, you know, all sorts of little things going on in the background that give you a fuller sense of the story he's telling. But the real interest lies in the main characters themselves. 
you get um, you know, just just fascinating details. There's one about a, a woman who falls into uh, to become a, a woman of ill repute. And she starts off as a seamstress. You, the way you know that is because the picture has, you know, she's got a bonnet on, but she's got her scissors hanging down from her belt and a little piece of thread and so on. You know, you get to see what's going on in the picture. You get to see this story because there's so much detail in the characters. In the same way, Paul focuses in on the details of the two main characters in this salvation history picture, black and white, that's going on. Two characters, of course, are us and God. And he paints them in detail. Firstly, us. In the midst of this rescue from darkness to light, Paul adds this detail to show us how unworthy we are of God's un- of God's saving love. You see, he makes it clear we are not just victims being rescued, but actually when God saved us, we were willing participants in our sin. This is this is the, this is the kind of gobsmacking moment. This isn't just wow, God has saved us. This is look at look at what He's done. You followed the ways of the world. That's an active word, isn't it? You gratified the desires of the flesh. That's a willing word. You were deserving of wrath. So God's rescue of us isn't just a rescue of victims. It's a rescue of rebels. It's almost it's almost impossible to illustrate that. You know, if we try to think of pictures, I heard someone say once, you know, salvation is like a, a, a man who's trespassed in someone's uh, private grounds and he's um, swum out into the lake and he starts to drown, he can't swim, and the owner of the house comes and takes the boat out into the middle of the lake and he says, I'm here to rescue you. And the guy goes, says, no, go away, I don't want any help. And then he rescues him anyway. The problem with that is you'd have to be mad <laughs> to be the guy drowning the lake and say you don't want any help. We, we, we weren't mad. <laughs> I can't think of an illustration to explain it. We were willingly rebelling against God. You know, that's, again, that's sort of powerful in terms of the gospel. People we know who need to hear the gospel don't, they don't just need to hear you're a victim and you need rescue. They need to hear there's a Lord and you need to kneel. You need to change your will. You need to get on your knees. And change your mind about what you think about the world, about what you think about God and your need for him. You need to recognize that what you're doing is rebellion. But God is rich in mercy. So he paints this picture of us, and then he gives a detail of God. Not just the rescuer. His love is not just loving, it's mercy. He was within his rights to get rid of us, dismiss us, destroy us, whatever he wanted to do with us. And no one would have called him unfair. No one could have even called him unloving. That's the key point. If he just decided not to save us, he would have still been the God of love. He wouldn't have changed who he was if he simply cast us off. But he was merciful. He grants us not only salvation from death, not only eternal life, but he gives us, (laughs) he gives us the faith that makes it possible to have that eternal life. Faith is a gift. Isn't that wonderful that faith is a gift? It means you can pray for your relatives to be saved, you know that? No one has ever prayed, Lord, I pray that you would bring, you know, my brother or whoever it is, to the point where he can really understand his options. 
and make an informed decision to reject or accept you. You ever prayed like that? I hope not. <laughs> we pray that people, God would save people, don't we? God, give him the faith. Open his eyes. Make the blind man see. You know, that's, that's what we pray for people that <laughs> we want to be saved. He loves us so much. He's so merciful. He even gives us the faith to, to transform, to, uh, to enable us to believe in him. He doesn't just call us to good works. He's so good. He prepares good works in advance for us to do. You know, that's just mind blowing to me. That's like, I don't know. Imagine if, uh, Imagine if your child, God forbid, when they got to 18, they did a prodigal son on you and said, I want my inheritance, I'm going, I never want to speak to you again. And they just left. And they forswore ever meeting you again. And then 20 years down the road, they came home. And you hadn't heard a peep out of them. And you welcome them back, just like in the prodigal son. And then, you know, they find out that you kept their room for them. You kept investing in a trust fund for them. Also, you know, you've, all that time you've been preparing for their return. That's what God has been doing for us while we rebelled against Him. He loves us so much. He wants us so much. He's been preparing for our welcome in the midst of our rebellion. He's prepared good works in advance for us to do. You know, this is just incredible. You know, this, This is incredible. God has given us far more than we could ever deserve. And yet, he loves us so much, he'll transform us into the image of his son. So that one day, not in this life, but when we're in glory, we will deserve the things that he's given us that we don't deserve. (laughs) Because we'll be like him. Isn't that amazing? So, drawing it all together. I think the the pictures are powerful in their own right. They show us, verse 7 says, the incomparable riches of his grace. The incomparable riches of his grace. They they show us the beauty of God's salvation. His mercy, his grace, you know, our privilege, all those things. They are deeply glorifying to him. And remember, our application is that we live lives worthy of this calling. That's what we started with. You know, and there's one way to understand this passage, and I've heard it preached this way, is that if we get this picture, we'll be so full of gratitude to God of what he's done that we want to serve him out of thanksgiving. And that certainly should be going on in our hearts, shouldn't it? But you know, that just reminds me, and I think I feel like I preached this recently. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it reminds me of when the prodigal son comes home. And he, and he kneels down before his father and he says, I've sinned against you. You know, I just, I'd be happy to be a servant in your house. You know, that would have been more than just, wouldn't it? That would have been merciful if the father said, yeah, okay, you can be a servant, I'll pay you. And, you know, but God doesn't just want us to serve him because we're thankful for what he's done. This is the key point. He doesn't just want us to serve him because we're thankful for this big picture. God wants us to see the riches of his grace, not only in their beauty, but in the power of his grace. He's saying, Look what love can do. Behold the power of the cross. Look in awe at the tidal wave of mercy that floods into the world through my hesed, unchanging, unwavering love that Andy talked about. Look at what God's love, his unchanging love can do. 
You know, I, I read somewhere this week, someone said, you know, God's love can never be in the past perfect tense. It can never be God loved you. Because if it's true love, it never ends. Isn't that amazing? If you really love someone, it can never be loved. It can only be loved. And that's what God is saying. Look at what this love can do. Look at what my kindness expressed through Christ, the cross of Christ, me pouring out all my love, poured out incessantly, without limit, full of grace. Look at what this can do. Forgiveness for enemies, love returned for hatred, the rich making himself poor to raise up the lowly. Look at the power of love. Experience it in your own life. It brings the dead to life. It brings everlasting, abundant beauty, goodness, truth. It brings eternal life. It brings glory to me in this age and the ages to come. It lifts the lowly up to the highest place. And this is the most incredible thing. It, this puzzle, this thing that's so hard to put into it, is it converts. It melts the hardest of hearts. It converts the most hardened of sinners. It breaks down the gates of hell where impossibility is, love makes it possible. You know, the, uh, a companion reading to this, we could have read it this week from, from Numbers, is the snake in the wilderness. You know, the snakes are in the wilderness and they attack the Israelites with their rebellion. God sends them. Then he lifts up a snake on a pole, a bronze snake, what Moses does. And those who look on that snake are saved. This is the incredible thing. God takes the source of our rebellion and makes it the instrument of his glory, the cross. He takes our sin and says, I'll save them and I'll make them sons. This is the power of love. So to live a life worthy of your calling is not only to be thankful, it's not only to look at that black and white picture and this amazing transfer, people streaming out of hell and heaven, and go, wow, that's amazing. It's not only to stand in the awe, in awe at the grace of God. It's to understand the power of God's love and to choose to live your life according to that same principle. Will you love as God loves? Now you know what it can do. That's the foundation of the Christian life. Yeah, maybe there are particular situations you're facing. Um, Mother's Day. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think there's more than a, a a roll, a record in heaven. I think there's more than a scroll with some mum's names on it. I think mothering is almost the very essence of what we're talking about, isn't it? To love like God. It's woven into our nature. And for mothers who carry that out imperfectly, but consistently, there will be more mothers ahead of John Wesley in heaven for simply being mothers, not starting the Methodist church. As wonderful as the Methodist church is, more wonderful is that image of God that's portrayed through that unwavering, gracious, merciful love that brings life, literally and metaphorically, into the world. Maybe there are situations you're facing today where you're like, I'm not sure if I can just carry on pouring my life into this situation or that person. I'm not sure if this this person deserves my forgiveness. You know, it doesn't seem to be working doing things God's way. I've served so much, I'm exhausted. You know, and God wants to shake us as well as give us his picture. He wants to 
that power of this picture to flow into us and to reignite that confidence that doing things his way, loving like that, will work. It will work. You know, our fear is we're like that dying bunch of flowers or that tree that's been cut down. We've only got limited resources. And if I pour myself out in this direction, I'm not going to have anything left for this. Because I've got a limited resource to work with and only a certain amount of time. And God says, no, you're plugged into the greatest power source, life source in the universe. It's a Christ. And his love, his power is at work in you and through you. There's no need to lose hope. There's no need to lack faith. There's no need to stumble. I will flow through you. God calls us to be merciful as he is merciful. To never be able to say, I love to them. But to always say, I love them. To love the loveless, to extend mercy, to forgive the unforgivable. To have hope and faith that when we pour ourselves out in service to people or causes that seem dead losses, we'll see life. We'll see God glorified. There's reward in heaven and riches that we cannot understand at work. And it brings life to us as well. I suppose God's calling us to a renewed commitment to pursue his love in our own lives. We need to know it for ourselves. And maybe the Lord would like to minister his love to you in a fresh way, give you a new sight of it. Maybe to bring uh, healing into a situation. Maybe to reignite in you that passion that enables you to love him unfailingly to have that confidence that as he loves you then you can love him in return but I think most of all he wants to unstop the wells that enable us to love others that way to consistently, unfailingly, unwaveringly love as he loves and to see the wonders of that mercy released in our lives and the lives of those we love and I think it would be good to respond in that way in a moment Here's a great mystery to finish with. At the centre of heavenly worship, Revelation tells us, is a slain lamb upon a throne. Something most mysterious. Angels couldn't guess at it before it happened. A mystery long hidden, now revealed, the cross. The worst thing that ever happened is at the centre of heavenly worship turned into the most glorious thing. We see there not only the glorious heights of God's love, but the merciful depths of God's love. Surrounding that throne forever will be a people whose lives match that contrast. A people who are rescued from darkness into light. A people who are filthy, cleansed, shackled slaves made into freed sons. Orphans adopted, wretches and rebels seated as rulers with Christ. And through them, poured out from that throne and through these lives that have been transformed from darkness to light, 
the whole universe filled with his glory. See what love can do, God says, and pursue the life of Christ. Amen.